from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Artani over at the Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 16th. Today, the science of why some young people are dying from coronavirus, the gatherings that became outbreaks, and virus deniers. Over the past few weeks, reporters of The Post have been trying to figure out how many younger people are dying from COVID-19. And by younger people, we're talking about people under the age of 50. So these reporters tracked down data on coronavirus deaths from a bunch of different state agencies. What we found is that older people have more of a risk, but the risk does not stand at zero for younger people. That's reporter Chris Mooney. He found that as of last week, at least 759 younger people had died of COVID-19. That's certainly not as much as the fatalities among older people. But what we wanted to draw attention to is the fact that it does happen. And sometimes it appears that for some reason that no one is in the position to explain yet, the disease just sort of strikes some people really hard. Most of the patients who are coming in are under the age of 50, and most of those are actually looking pretty good. Sean Evans is an emergency physician and resuscitation director at Scripps Memorial Hospital in Southern California. But the ones who are under 50 who are not doing well, and this is the key thing, when they're not doing well, they're doing very poorly. With the older population, you see a lot of people who are kind of in the middle zone. They don't look great. They don't look bad. In the younger group, we see either looking really good or looking really, really bad. For about half of the younger patients who are seriously ill, they have what are called comorbidities, other underlying health conditions like diabetes that already put you at higher risk. However, we're being surprised. We're seeing people who have no intrinsic pulmonary illness, no nicotine dependence, and no underlying immune-compromising illness that are still coming in critically ill. And when you say looking really, really bad, what does that actually mean? An example would be someone who comes in and they say they haven't been able to sleep. Their cough has been keeping them up. Their lungs sound terrible. They're wheezing from the side of the room. And you notice that they can't complete a sentence. And for the patients that you talk to that are in this situation, what do they say or what do their family members say about what it's been like to see how dramatic their symptoms can be? The narrative is almost always the same. Oh my gosh, I, I never thought that this could happen to them. They were perfectly fit. They were fine. They ran 10 miles every other day. And it, it leaves a great deal of bewilderment and vulnerability. And I think the message is for any young person is that if you have COVID, you are not, you are not in a category that cannot get ill. Have you noticed a difference in terms of the people who are younger, they have serious symptoms, in terms of how or if they're able to recover? Like once people get to the point of being put on ventilators, are people in their 30s and 40s and 50s like better able to handle that? Or They are if they don't have underlying illnesses. So as a risk group, they will frequently do better than that older population because their pulmonary dynamics and their cardiac status is so much more robust. But let me point this out to you. The real tragedy and the real consequences of these number of young people who've survived their hospitalization, their lungs will likely never be the same. 
They oftentimes develop scar tissue. They develop a hyperspasticity. They're more prone to wheezing. And with every other insult throughout their life, they're far more prone to having an exaggerated pulmonary consequence. So it's not as if this just goes away. When somebody has been intubated and they've had significant threat to their lungs, the scar tissue and the spasticity stay with them. And frequently, they're more prone to illness throughout their life. So this has real large population health consequences that we've yet to encounter with the many young people who've bruised and injured their lungs. I actually didn't know that. I mean, I, I would imagine that your lungs would be weaker for like a week or two after, but you're saying this is like a lifetime worth of potential consequences. Everybody knows somebody who will say this. They'll say, you know, I had pneumonia in college and it might be your friend and they'll say, and ever since then, I just haven't felt like my lungs were quite right. And that's a very subtle way of saying I didn't have the respiratory reserve to run again. I didn't have the respiratory reserve to exercise at my fullest. And although we would hope for a different outcome, that's certainly one of the consequences of acute lung injury. And what was your reaction when you started realizing that there were these younger patients who were coming in and that, and that for some of them, their symptoms were pretty serious? Yeah, we were astonished because we had a completely different picture coming out of China and South Korea and quite frankly, even Italy. And it was Italy that really pointed out that many of these folks were, first of all, male, and then in Spain that was replicated. And second of all, that it was a younger population that was tragically dying. What are the theories on why this disease becomes serious for some young people? There has to be something both at the level of how their hemoglobin functions, both at the level of how their lungs protect themselves. It goes to show how little we really know about gene expression. As we age, our genes control different receptors. And the best way to look at it is, is male pattern baldness. As we age, our beautiful hair for men begins to regress. And it's, it's theorized and postulated that just as we undertake male pattern baldness, we also undertake different receptors and different organs. And one of those receptors is called an ACE, A-C-E, which is called angiotensin converting enzyme receptor. And these seem to populate areas within the lungs. And what they're finding is, is this might be the molecular channel that actually engages viruses into the lungs and causes some of the inflammation and swelling. And so if men have a greater genetic tendency for these receptors, conceivably, that might be the population that winds up getting sicker with pulmonary illness. Now, that's obviously very theoretic, but it's something they're looking at. In addition to that, just as we have something like sickle cell disease, which is very clearly a genetically inheritable condition, you also have smaller little elements within the hemoglobins of almost everybody. You have different blood types. You have different protein expression. And ultimately, we're finding that certain groups wind up having the virus bind to the hemoglobin and prevent oxygen from attaching itself to the hemoglobin. So these people wind up slowly starving for oxygen, which create a great strain. And those are oftentimes the sickest patients. The ones we worry most about are the ones who look you in the eye and say they're not short of breath, but their oxygen levels are in the 70s and 80s. And the answer is get them oxygen, get as much oxygen into them as you possibly can to try and overcome that virus attaching to their hemoglobin. So all of this seems to anchor into the notion that we're all genetically different and some people express receptors both in their hemoglobin and in their lungs to a different manner. And they're the ones who have the hardest time fighting off this viral attack and have the overwhelming infection. 
And you're still not seeing very many children, right? Because I feel like I heard that very early on in the outbreak that like children are weirdly unaffected. It's the strangest thing. And imagine this, within the blood and genus sphere of these young kids is something that's incredibly protective to them. And somehow in our own genetic expression, as we age, enables this virus to attack the lungs and the kidneys and even the organ systems of the liver much more adeptly. So there is this narrative that that we've had as a country pretty much since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak that if you're young, you're probably going to be fine, that it doesn't really affect young people. What is your reaction to seeing how differently that plays out in reality? Oh, I'm sickened by it. Yeah. What we should have done is we should have targeted people understanding that kids themselves may not have any symptoms, but they're carriers. That younger adults, particularly in their 20s, are more likely to have very limited illness and not think much of it, but that they are the intermediary for everybody who will get it. If that message had been sent out, it would have sent a commanding and resonating message that young people need to protect everybody in their community. And it really could have empowered them and engendered them to take a much different posture. But as it was, we saw what happened on the Florida beaches, and it's understandable. But I think we're all much smarter now. I think we're all much sensitive to one another. And I think we're all less cavalier about the consequences of me coughing, sneezing, or shaking hands with somebody and co-infecting them unnecessarily. The truth of the matter is, is that social distancing and isolating right now are working. We've got to keep young people who might otherwise feel well in the domain of understanding that they have it. And they may pass it to somebody who can't possibly overtake the illness for reasons that we don't understand. And they may very well be the ones who the the virus enjoys the master keys to their immune system, where it can manipulate them and cause an early death. So nobody wants to be the person who says, I co-infected my family member and they died. Nobody wants to say I co-infected my neighbor or the postman or my good friend. Sean Evans is an emergency physician and resuscitation director at Scripps Memorial Hospital. There was a period of time early on in this coronavirus crisis when we all knew that the virus was here. We all knew that the virus was spreading. But so far, the coronavirus has missed Michigan, but testing increased over the There was no real action at that point from various leaders. Yeah, don't panic. That is the message from health departments. There is a plan. It was before the time when governors were telling people to stay at home. It was before mayors and county executives said it's time for businesses to shut down. And it's time especially for people to stop getting together in big groups. Likely to find the case somewhere in Michigan at some point. But does that mean we should panic or stay inside? Or no, for sure mean? not. No, definitely not. You know, I think that, you know, keep an eye And I wanted to know what the fallout from that period of time was. I remember myself that there were still lots and lots of big gatherings, parties, political rallies, birthday celebrations from that period in early March. 
And I think all of us at the time were thinking this could be really problematic, but it's not until now that we know just how problematic it really was. I'm Griff Whitty, and I'm a national correspondent for The Post. So tell me some of the stories that you heard from people who ended up in group gatherings in that critical period. So I spoke with a number of current and retired officers from the Wayne County Sheriff's Office. And every year, there's a big party the first Friday of March. And everyone knows when it's going to be. Everyone knows where it's going to be. It's going to be at Burt's. Burt's is a legendary hangout in Detroit. Dozens of current and retired sheriff's officers got together at Burt's to listen to music, to eat good food, and to catch up. And one of the people who was there was a man named Donafe Collins, Commander Donafe Collins. He was also a DJ. He DJed for years for one of the big Motown stations in Detroit. He was just one of these people who has this magnetic personality, and you meet him and you love him. And going into this party, were there concerns about the fact that this outbreak was starting to look more serious, or was there any discussion about whether or not it was a good idea to carry on? So this was March 6th that the party took place. And at that point, there had been COVID in the United States for about six weeks. But as far as authorities knew, there was no COVID in Michigan. There had been no confirmed cases of COVID. For the people who went to this party, yes, there was concern, but it seemed like a distant concern. So what ended up happening after this party in Detroit? So Donafe went to this party. He posted on his Facebook page the very next day saying, what a night. He posted several pictures of himself with good friends. About a week after that Facebook post, he posted again and said, I am really not feeling well. He didn't mention COVID, but he said, this flu is no joke. A number of other people who had been at the party wrote in on the comments saying, I'm down too. I don't feel well. And as it happens, at least seven people who had been at that party got sick with COVID. And dozens of officers in the sheriff's department ended up getting sick with COVID. Commander Collins, he directly reported to me um, as my uh, commander. I'm deputy chief with Wayne County Sheriff's Office. We worked together uh, side by side for probably the last uh, 12 years. Collins, who was in the hospital for a week, and I can't even go up there to just, just, you know, see him and, and, and talk to him. And and what happened to Commander Collins? Commander Collins died of COVID. He had four children. He was the only one so far from the party who has passed away. You know, having worked with someone like that, and then uh, suddenly, within a week of uh, entering the hospital, getting sick and, and passing away, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's something that I've never experienced in my life. Uh, I talked to Ray Washington, the deputy sheriff, in the Wayne County Sheriff's Office. And for him, Commander Collins was only the first of eight friends he has lost because of coronavirus. When we talk about um, eight people in two weeks, I've never in my life thought I'd lose eight people uh, that I associate with on a very, very regular basis uh, to, uh, to anything. Uh, I never thought that that would happen. 
what are some of the other gatherings that that public health officials have been able to trace back as as the origins of, of some of these clusters that we've seen pop up around the country? So when public health experts look at where this disease has been spreading, where it was spreading in early March, they're looking at these big events where large numbers of people gathered before these social distancing measures really kicked off. And they're thinking about events like the Purim Festival in Jewish communities where people are going to one another's houses, giving gifts of food in suburban New York in a town called Muncie, which is about 25 miles from Manhattan. The number of people infected in the ultra-Orthodox community in, in Muncie has been significantly higher than in the general population. They're thinking about events like a 15-year-old's birthday in rural Nebraska or a birthday at Trump National Hotel on the Pacific Coast where the political elite of an upscale, well-to-do community are all getting together for a birthday celebration for the former mayor. And very soon after this party, a number of the people who had been at this party became ill. And it seems like in some ways it's getting even more complicated now because so many people have friends or family members who unfortunately have died because of coronavirus. And the idea of dealing with that grief and and dealing with that loss and isolation is really difficult for people to wrap their heads around. Yeah, I I spoke with uh, Ray Washington, the the deputy sheriff in, in Wayne County, And the one thing that he wants to do is to grieve these friends together, to be part of these communities. Then you can't even mourn them the proper way, you know, because of this this very aggressive social distancing that I believe we must do. And that's the one thing that can't happen right now. You can't even even mourn them and, 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 and bury them like we would regularly traditionally do, you know. Uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. I think that at this point, a lot of us have heard stories like this, stories about people who went to a dinner party or went to a religious celebration or whatever, and they got sick and they died. And it's really easy to look at those incidents and say, well, they should have known that it was too risky to hold an event like that, or they should have known that the coronavirus outbreak was too serious at that point to carry on with whatever they were planning. But I think that for a lot of us, it takes seeing those incidents and seeing people die from these relatively mundane events to understand the gravity of what we're all facing, especially in the absence of any clear guidance from the federal government or from the president in terms of what the real ramifications could be of just getting together with friends during a public health crisis like this. This is where leadership really comes in. The people I talked with said, you know, yes, we knew coronavirus was out there, but we didn't know that it was coming for us. And we didn't know that because our leaders were in many cases downplaying the significance of the virus. The leadership of the United States and particularly the White House during this period in early March was not there in terms of ringing the alarms and saying, this is a crisis of the first order. (laughs) 
And it becomes important now, again, because we've heard President Trump musing about the idea of reopening the country, of going back to something approaching business as usual. And I think that it's especially important now to consider what was going on in early March because we see there very clearly the consequences when gatherings are allowed to occur without any kind of attempt at social distancing. Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. And now, one more thing. I might make a point that people sometimes think that you're overreacting. I like it when people are thinking I'm overreacting because that means we're doing it just right. There are a lot of virus deniers out there and their feelings about it range from it's a hoax perpetrated by the left-wing media to it's the opponents of Donald Trump who are out to get him. More insidiously, more recently, there's been a a right-wing online campaign on social media called hashtag film your hospital. So what that is, is that folks are going out and filming empty hospital parking lots to show in their minds that the system is not overwhelmed as, you know, we're seeing in parts of the country now. We're at a pivotal moment in this country because we're starting to see the impacts of social distancing on the numbers. But deniers, some of whom have positions in state and federal government, don't credit that to good public health measures. I'm Annie Gowan, Midwest correspondent for The Washington Post. There's a lot of people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, you know, even at the White House level that have been arguing for a long time that we should have a nationwide stay-at-home order. I think so, Anderson. I don't understand why that's not happening. As you said, you know, the tension between federally mandated versus states' rights to do what they want is something I don't want to get into. But if you look at what's going on in this country, I just don't understand why we're not doing that. So, you know, of course, the president has resisted that. And in fact, you know, he really wants to see if we can open up parts of the country by May 1, you know, arguing that the cure is in some ways worse than the disease itself. Dr. Fauci has said Tuesday that, you know, that might be overly optimistic and, you know, the country does not have the critical testing and training capability that it needs to be able to do that kind of opening back up on May 1 that the president would like to see. And governors, many governors for a long time resisted that in their home states. We still have five states that don't have a statewide stay-at-home order and three more that sort of have a partial stay-at-home order. So there's at least eight holdouts in that respect. Very controversially, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has only sort of grudgingly put in a stay-at-home order recently, you know, and that's a state that's been very hard hit with coronavirus cases, especially in its elderly homes and nursing care facilities. And then you have Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, who just put his own stay in place order that not only did it exempt churches as a dozen states have, but it also overrode some of the local orders closing the beaches. So right now in Georgia, the beaches are technically open. And a lot of the mayors who are just furious about this, you know, because they think that the beaches should be closed. So the governor is sort of weighing what to do at this point. If something gets out of control, I'll take action to shut down specific you know, parks, boat ramps or whatever. But right now we're not seeing that. And I want to urge all Georgians to continue to, to follow the rules and help us with that. I went to Oklahoma 
around the time that they were just sort of waking up to the problem. The governor was still kind of very laissez-faire about it. His name is Kevin Stitt. He's a Trump ally. And he was tweeting about being at a packed restaurant and he was slow to close the schools. He ultimately did put in something called a safer at home order, which is not a full stay at home order, but it just applies to the most vulnerable folks in the population. We've uh, followed the CDC guidelines, the president's Trump's guidelines. They have not mandated, uh, you know, kind of a bunker in place type uh, uh, order. So we are focused on safer at home. I've done that in all 77 counties in Oklahoma, and uh, we're focused on the most vulnerable population. I think that all the medical professionals would say that social distancing is working. I mean, we're seeing it in the data and that, you know, the death tolls, the death tolls are being in the projections and the models are scaling them down. But that doesn't mean that we need to stop doing it or, you know, downscale our efforts. We are at a very critical point right now. I think the virus deniers and those who, who haven't been taking it very seriously would be quick to say that. The reason why these numbers are going down in some places is because the media overhyped it. And the reason why hospital tent, for example, in Seattle is being deployed to a harder hit area is because the media overhyped the need. But really, Washington State, for example, put its social distancing policy in place early and they flattened their curve. So that's the critical point that we're in. On the one hand, you know, you have the president arguing to open the country back up as soon as possible. And you have public health experts saying that we need to continue these measures, at least for the near term, so that we can flatten the curve overall and, you know, beat back the virus. Annie Gowan is the Midwest correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're going to do an episode all about testing for the coronavirus, how it's working or not working, who gets a test and who does not, and why widespread testing is key to reopening the economy. If you have unanswered questions about testing, we want to hear from you. Email your questions to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.